Well, good morning. Um, so before we get into the message for this morning, I want to just let you guys know um, about an event going on next week. You, if you checked your bulletin, you saw this in the bulletin, and some of you also got an email invitation to this, but we're going to have a training time for the Discipleship Project. And so let me just rewind, if you're trying to place all of this, back in the fall, we spent a number of weeks rolling out this whole concept of the Discipleship Project. And so let me just give a reminder. The whole idea is that those of us who are believers in Jesus, we're not called simply to exist. We are called to follow Jesus. We're called to grow. And, the, and following Jesus involves all kinds of transformation and shaping that takes place in our lives. And that's called discipleship. As Christians, we are disciples. And a big part in the Bible, a big part of discipleship happens with one another, that we partner with one another in discipleship relationships. And so we talked about the idea that we believe that God is calling us as a church family to exist in a way where it is just normal for people to be getting together in either small groups or one-on-one relationships and building each other up in their faith. And since the fall, this has been happening all over the place. Different groups of people have started to meet together. One-on-one people have been meeting together, going through books, reading the Bible, praying for one another, and growing in their faith. And so we're having once a quarter, we're having meetings like this where we're just gathering together to do more training in this and also to keep this before our eyes. And and so let me just say, as we get ready for this next week, down in the garage, right after third service, Lunch will be provided, childcare will be provided. And as we get ready for this, if you are somebody right now that is participating in the discipleship project, if you are meeting with somebody or somebody else is meeting with you, this is going to be worthwhile for you to come to. Because you may be doing this right now and saying, all right, I, I feel a little bit stuck. I feel a little bit confused about what to do next, or I've ran into a problem that I don't know how to solve. This is really going to help you with those things. In fact, we're going to have a question and answer time as part of this to be able to delve into those things. And uh, on the other hand, if you've been thinking about this, or if, to be honest, you're saying, well, I was thinking about it in the fall, and now that you're talking about it right in this moment, I'm thinking about it again, and you're thinking, maybe this is what God is calling me to do. As I'm starting off the year, and as I'm more focused on how God is moving in my life, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Because we want this to be happening through all ages at our church. So whether you're a high schooler, whether you're a young family, whether, whether you're an empty nester, wherever you are in your life, we want this to be happening. So if you say, I, I think maybe this is something God is calling me to do, come next week and you'll get help getting started. And on the other hand, if you're like, all right, you talked about this a lot in the fall, you talked about this right now, I still don't feel totally clear on what this is. I promise you by the time the meeting is over next week, you will know what it is. You'll be clear on it and clear about the idea of whether or not God is calling you to move in this time. So I really hope that you consider coming. It's going to be a really great time that we'll spend together. As I said, lunch and child care are included, and this is an important time as we look for how God is moving in our midst. But what we're going to be continuing on on today is the second week of this series that we're starting off the year with, the series called Jesus Over Everything. And the idea is that as we start the year, we want to talk about what does it look like for us to live with Jesus being supreme in our lives. 
In fact, some of you saw this last week, but our, but our creative team made these little pins that you can pick up afterwards if you didn't get one last week. And they're just, you can put them on your clothes, you can put them some, somewhere in your house, but they're just a symbol to remind us of this whole concept. It's a cross over the world, reminding us that just as we've sang about, Jesus is supreme and we want to live in a way that we're treating him as supreme. And so last week, we talked about the concept that Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is our starting point. As we live our lives, we don't try to fit Jesus in afterwards. We start with him and we build from there. So Jesus is our starting point. And this week, we're going to be talking about how Jesus is not only our starting point, but he also is our ending point as we look towards the future. So if you have a Bible, please open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be reading in just a short passage today, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, a passage that looks with us towards the end to see what does it look like to, to live for Jesus, not only as our starting point, but as our ending point. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow along in your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen as I read. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is God's word. And to start, I want to ask you a question, um, or, or rather, I want to have you raise your hands if this applies to you. Raise your hand if in your life you have regrets. Okay. I know you laugh. I understand why. Every hand really should go up. But, but when I not, sometimes when I have conversations with people about regrets, I'll run into people that say, I have no regrets which always mystified me. I thought, how in the world do you have no regrets? So if you didn't raise your hand, it's either probably because you just wouldn't raise your hand no matter what I asked you to raise your hand for, um, or I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess what those of you that say I have no regrets, what you mean by that. What you probably mean by that is I don't dwell on the past. I don't beat myself up over the past. I like to move forward. All right. So I'd say if that's what you mean for the most part, that's usually good. But when we talk about regrets, here's what we're talking about. And so let me just try to universalize this. Raise your hand if there's anything in your past that you wish you would have done differently. All right, now we should still be on board. I know some of you are holdouts, but still, (laughs) we, we all have regrets. We all have things about our past that we wish we would have done differently. Some of us feel haunted by those regrets because they're big ones. Maybe there's a relationship that you lost and you look back and say, why did I neglect them or treat them that way? It could have been different. Maybe you have regrets about how you've treated your body and how your health is now affected by that or how you handle your finances and debt that you're in now. Sometimes we have those big regrets. But then also, I want you just to think about what does it look like at the end of a day where you just look back and say, this day was not a day that I did what I was called to do. Hopefully, over the, the Christmas holidays, we all got some rest. 
Rest is good. Rest is a good gift from God. Um, and and I'm, a, I'm a person, I mean, I long for rest. Really, I really do enjoy weekends. I really enjoy the breaks and the downtime. And I'll just say, some of you will re- relate to this. Um, Christmas break was a restful time, and I was thankful for that. But man, there were a lot of days that I got to the end of the day, and I just found myself asking, out of, after an incredibly restful day, what in the world am I doing with my life? It's like, I watched some football, I ate a bunch of stuff, I talked with some people, maybe did a lot of reading, I was sitting, I was lounging. It, it was restful and it was easy. Man, but I get to the end of the day, after a day that I think I want, that's what I think I want, and I get to the end of the day and I just say, what in the world am I doing with my life? This is not what I am created for. We are not created to get to the end of the day and say, well, that was easy. We're created to get to the end of the day and and have that joy and have that pleasure of saying, man, it wasn't easy and I certainly didn't do it perfectly, but today I did what God set before me. Today I did what God had called me to do. That's a day. There's a richness to getting to the end of the day and not having these lingering regrets of I just coasted through this one. But to say I didn't do it perfectly, man, I did what God set before me today. And think of the richness of that, not just with a day, but with a life. Where you look back and you say, gosh, I I certainly didn't do this perfectly. There's lots of things that I did wrong. But I lived my life devoted to things that mattered rather than just trying to coast through or make it easy. What we're going to talk about today is what it looks like to live a life that's free from that nagging regret because it's devoted to things that mattered. And as you may have already heard in the passage that we just read a minute ago, we get to read some words from the Apostle Paul as he looks back on his life and is able to say that he lived a life without those lingering regrets. But just a quick note on this, because some of you might be thinking this. Some of you might be thinking, the Apostle Paul didn't have regrets? Are you sure? Because some of you know some things about Paul. You know that before he was a believer in Jesus, he actively persecuted the church. Paul has no regrets. It seems like that ship sailed. And and in a way, you're right. And there are different passages where Paul talks about his deep regret over the way that he lived before Jesus saved him. And at the same time, this is a reminder to all of us. Paul is able at the end of his life to look back with joy about how he spent his time instead of with deep-seated regret, not because he was perfect, but because he had been radically transformed and rescued by the gospel of Jesus. He wasn't standing at the end of his life saying, I did it, and so God's going to let me into heaven. He stood at the end of his life saying, God wiped me clean and welcomed me into the family And then I dedicated my life completely to him. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, a life free from regret, that's too late for me. I can't do that. I can't possibly live that way. What I want you just to think about is this, man, we're we're at the beginning of the year. Think of this as sort of an opportunity for new beginnings. Don't spend the time thinking, what are all the regrets that I have in the past? Think, man, from this point forward, do you want to live a life that you get to the end of and said, well, I made it as easy as I could for myself, 
Or do you want to live a life that you look back on and say, I devoted my life to what God called me to do. I devoted my life to things that matter in eternity instead of the things that fade away now. And what Paul's going to tell us in this passage about regret is that the only life free from regret is a life that makes Jesus supreme. A life that puts Jesus over everything. So we're going to walk back through these three verses. And in these three verses, we're going to see three characteristics of Paul's life that made it a life free from regret. And as we see that, we're going to get insight into what it looks like for us to live the kind of life that isn't nagged by regret, but is focused on making Jesus supreme. And so the first characteristic is in verse 6, and the first characteristic is to live sacrificially. And Paul gives us an image. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Now, here's the context of this letter. Paul has written this entire letter, of course, to Timothy. Some of you were, were around this past year, and we went through the entire book of 1 Timothy. This is his second letter to Timothy, who's his protege. He's just got done with an intense passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, where he says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got a job to do. There are going to be people that don't want to listen to the gospel, that don't want to listen to God's word. You're going to be tempted to abandon your job. Timothy, do your job. Be faithful to what God is calling you to do. And part of the intensity over that is that Paul then is saying, it's about to be my time that I'm no longer here. Second Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. And we're walking through the last chapter of the last letter that Paul had written. In fact, after these verses, after verses 6 through 8, from there on in, it's basically greetings and wrapping things up. So this morning, we are really going through the last passage of the last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote before his execution, before he was killed for his faith in Jesus. And he says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And this is a vivid image. If you look back in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of sacrifices that were offered to God. And one of the sacrifices was the whole idea of a drink offering. And it's not 100% clear why Paul uses this image as opposed to just a generic sacrifice. But I think maybe the reason he uses this image is that there's just something vivid about the idea of being poured out, being emptied out for God. Paul is saying, I am being used up for God. I'm leaving nothing on the field. I am being poured out. And he had been being poured out basically since the moment he came to faith in Jesus. He lived a life of suffering because instead of identifying with the Jewish people, but proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah, and instead of identifying with the Roman people, but instead telling them their gods were not real gods, Paul identified himself fully with Jesus, and that meant that he was ostracized from people around him. And because he was completely devoted to Jesus, it also meant that he suffered all kinds of difficulties, and not only the imprisonments or the physical harm that he faced, but also just the fact that he was constantly in danger of shipwreck or homelessness because he was traveling around spreading the message of Jesus. Paul lived a life completely used up for Jesus. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. 
And then to finish the analogy, he says, and the time of my departure is near. And the Greek word here for departure, it it casts the image of a ship being let loose and then sent off to sail. And that's how Paul is picturing his upcoming death. I've had my time here. I've been poured out. The pouring out is about to be done, and I'm going to be set off to sail. Pretty soon, I'm no longer going to be here. But the way that Paul summarizes his life to Timothy is that it's a sacrifice. And notice something important here. Because even as you read those words up on the screen, live sacrificially, it's probably tempting that what's going to come to your mind is what this means is that I live my life sacrificing for others. I'll say, all right, we'll get to that idea. That's not actually what Paul is saying. He's not saying I lived my life as a sacrifice to others. He's saying I lived my life as a sacrifice to God. It was an offering to the God of the universe. I have been poured out as a drink offering. Our lives, if they're going to be free from regret, our lives that are meant to be such a sacrifice that we are used up for God. You ever seen somebody who's been used up by something? I always think, maybe this isn't nice, I always think of aging rock stars And you look at them and you just say, wow, rock and roll has used you up. You once looked a lot different. You weren't quite as skinny. You didn't look quite as tired. Um, Some of you are watching the football playoffs right now. Um, Sadly, have you ever seen an aging football player who now has been hit with the arthritis, has been hit with the cumulative cumulative effect of, of the concussions? And you say, man, they have been used up by football. You might look at this and say, I don't know if I want to be used up by God. I don't think I want to be used up by anyone or anything. But here's what we need to realize. We will all be used up for something. Do you want to be used up in the pursuit of money? At the end of your life, you look back and others look back and say, wow, they did all that they could to accumulate stuff, all that they could to be comfortable. They were used up by their job and by their pursuits to accumulate a lot of money. If you're used up by money, you're being used up by something that's going to fade the moment that you're gone. You're going to be used up by trying to gain the approval of other people. It's very tempting. It's very tempting to try to store up all of those likes or all of those loves or all of those comments. It's tempting to be the person around your group of friends or around your group at work where everybody just likes you. Are you going to be used up in the pursuit of trying to get people to like you? Or are you going to be used up for the king of kings who will one day return as the final ruler? We will one day all look back and say, something used us up. Paul says, I'm gambling on Jesus. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to use my money. I'm going to use my time. I'm going to use my spiritual gifts. I'm going to use my affections and everything that I have. And at the end, people look at me and say, he was used up for Jesus. If we're going to live a life that's free from regret, that means that we're living a life that is a sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice to God. 
Now, I already mentioned this, but part of when you look at this, you might say, all right, well, sacrifice, I, I guess that means that any time, any opportunity for me to say no to myself and yes to somebody else comes along, I, I've got to say yes. Anybody wants money from me, anybody wants time from me, anybody wants anything from me, that, that just means I automatically do it because that's a sacrificial life. And, and I want to say, I think that Paul actually anticipates and corrects that with what he says in verse 7 because he starts by saying, we live sacrificially, but then the second thing that he talks about is the idea that we live faithfully. And there's something significant about this. Do you know what it means to be faithful? It means that you're doing these three words. You're doing your job. Doesn't mean that you're a world conqueror. Doesn't mean that you're famous. Doesn't mean that other people are deeply impressed with what you're doing. It means that you are simply doing what God has set before you to do. And Paul uses verse 7 to look back and uses three phrases. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's just be honest for a minute. To anybody else, does it sound maybe a little bit like Paul is bragging here? How many of you are nodding? It's like, all right, I don't want to say it. It's in the Bible and it's the Apostle Paul, but it sounds a little bit like he's bragging. This is what I did. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And, and while this is, this is a good translation of what's going on here in the Greek, there's a clue in the Greek that shows that Paul's emphasis is very different than that. And the clue is that in the original Greek, the way the sentence is structured is it's actually inverted. Paul doesn't say in the literal translation, I fought the good fight. He says, the good fight I have fought. The race I have finished. The faith I have kept. And the, the question is, you might be saying, well, what's the significance of that other than he sounds a little bit like Yoda when he says it that way? <laughs> And the significance is this. Paul is putting the emphasis not on the impressiveness of his own actions, but on the goodness of the things that he chose to focus on. The emphasis is not on the fact that he fought, but on the fact that it was the good fight. Not on the fact that he finished, but on the fact that he finished the race. And not on the fact that he kept, but on the fact that it was the faith that he kept. And, and these images, they're kind of a repetition. They, they go together. I fought the good fight. And the, the word for fight here, it's actually where we get our English word agony or agonize. I agonized the good agony. This was a struggle. This was a difficulty. When you're walking with Jesus, there are struggles, there are battles. And so it means that you battle against sin and temptation and you battle for purity. And means you battle against distractions and battle to keep yourself focused on Jesus. And you battle against living for the here and now and look to have eyes that are looking to eternity. It's a struggle. It's a battle. He says, but I fought the good fight. He also says, I finished the race. And by the way, no, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say what place he came in. Th this is striking, I think. He doesn't say, I won the race. He also doesn't say, I won the fight. I fought the fight, I finished the race. The emphasis is not on victory, but on faithfulness. 
He did what God set before him. And thirdly, when he says, I've kept the faith, the idea here seems to be, Paul, like all of us, but, but Paul certainly lived a life where there were lots of potential exit points. There were lots of points where Paul could have said, the suffering and the difficulty, it's too much. I should abandon ship. I should find some kind of life that is not as difficult as this. But he held on to his faith in Jesus despite all the difficulties that he faced. Paul doesn't get to the end and say, I won. Paul gets to the end and says, I finished. The emphasis is on faithfulness. And God's calling for us is not so much to win, but God's calling for us is to be faithful, to do our job with what he set before us. And so when it comes to this idea, when it comes to being faithful, um, there's aspects of this where it's just, it's the same for all of us as Christians, and there's aspects of it that are different from person to person. Um, And and so please understand this. This doesn't mean everything's up for grab. This doesn't mean, well, well, my course is different than everybody else's course. So maybe for a bunch of other people on their course, God is calling them to the battle for sexual purity and calling them to save sex for marriage. But I don't know if God is calling me to that battle. God is calling you to that battle. God calls all believers to that battle. It doesn't mean that if you're looking at things and saying, well, God has probably called some people to use their spiritual gifts to to build up the body of Christ, but I don't really know if that's what he's called me to do. That is exactly what God has called you to do. Every believer has a spiritual gift. The spiritual gifts belong to the gathered people, to the church. And so there are certain things that they're they're just true of all of us. But then we also know that being faithful doesn't mean that you're being faithful to do everybody's job. It means that you're being faithful to do your job and recognize that it's going to look a little bit different person to person. So, you know, some of us are at the stage where we've got kids in the home and we're parenting them. So some of us feel like, all right, what God has called us to do is he has called us to homeschool our kids. And that's what he's called us to do. And other people feel like, you know what God has called us to do? God has called us to get our kids into private school. We think that that's going to be the way to go for them. And other people say, you know what God has called us to do? God has called us to send our kids to public school, to be a light and a witness to the world. And so here's the deal. With what God has called you to do, your calling is to do your job and not despise somebody else who's doing a different version of doing their job. It means that within the body of Christ, you don't look at things and say, well, I obviously am not important if I'm not up front or I don't have a formal leadership role. Your calling is not to do everybody's job. Your calling is to be faithful in doing what God has called you to do. And let me share, I feel like I've experienced a little bit of this personally just over the last probably three or four months. Um, And I'll preface it by saying it this way. Um, For for some of you in this room, your instinct is is that if somebody around you has a problem, you are automatically supposed to do something dramatic to help them with that problem. There's some of you that you function that way. There's some of us that function the way that if somebody else has a problem, that's too bad, that's their problem. Um, I'll acknowledge that second one is my instinct, which some of you might be thinking, I don't know how I feel about that with Dan being one of our pastors. But I look at people and I'm like, oh gosh, that must be hard. I'll, I'll pray for you. 
Um, I'm not necessarily going to uproot my life. I, some of you really do, and I, and I know it can be a burden where you just you feel burdened. You lose sleep over the idea that there's somebody, and I could be doing something, and you feel like I'm supposed to do everything for anybody that has a problem. And what I want you to know is if you feel that, if you, if you have that kind of drive, I'm supposed to do it anytime there's a problem, I'm supposed to drop everything and do something about this. What I want you to know is that you are set free. You are not capable, first of all, of solving all of those problems. You are set free from the burden of being everything to everybody. Your calling before God is to go before Him in prayer and to ask Him to guide you with clarity about which of those situations you are meant to enter into and which ones you're meant to trust God that He's going to lead other people to enter into. And then some of you are more like me, and you're like, gosh, it must be hard to live that way that He just talked about. Um, I don't feel overburdened with the problems of other people. What I want to say is, for those of us that don't feel overburdened with the problems of other people, we need to be willing to go before the Lord and at least ask the question, is this a situation that you're asking me to take a more active role in? I'd say over, over about the past, as I mentioned, over about the past four months, there have been probably about five situations that, uh, of, of friends and people that have been in my life for a while, of dramatic things that have happened in their lives, and God has been faithful to make it totally clear to me, yes, 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 yes. You are supposed to enter in. You're supposed to be sending that guy texts regularly because right now his marriage is falling apart. You're supposed to be visiting that guy that has the legal problems. You're supposed to be helping this person through his grief. God has been faithful in all of those situations. And I'll, I'll just tell you, it, it has been an extra burden to my plate. I, I have felt like more is going on because of that. But I'm so thankful I have complete peace because I absolutely know those five things are part of my job before God. On the one hand, I'm not making it up. And on the other hand, I'm not ignoring the voice of God. And I'm not changing the world in these five people's lives. But in those five lives, I do believe I'm doing my job. God is calling us not even to win the fight, but to fight the fight. Not even to win the race, but to finish the race. Be sacrificial and live faithfully. But as we get into the third one, I just want to say this. You might look at this and be like, all right, I'm not saying anything that's been said so far isn't true, but you're starting to feel kind of burdened. Like my entire life is supposed to be a sacrifice to God, so that means I'm going to set aside my own personal interests. That means I'm probably going to give money away. That means I'm going to be saying no to sin that kind of feels good in the moment. I'm going to be doing a lot of sacrificing. Why in the world would I keep that up? And the reason we keep that up is because Paul tells us a life free from regret is not only a life that we live sacrificially and not only a life that we live faithfully, but a life that we live hopefully, a life that we live with an eye towards the future. In fact, some scholars, as they've broken down these three verses, say verse 6 is about Paul's present, verse 7 is about Paul's past, and verse 8 is about Paul's future. He's about to die but he's looking at the future. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Paul's about to die. He knows his end is coming, but he says, there's something waiting for me after death. And it's the crown of righteousness. Now people debate on this because there's this and there's other crowns. 
that are named in the New Testament. And there's debate. Are these literal crowns, literal things that Jesus crowns us with upon our death or upon his return? Or is this symbolic? And I'll say, I'm not 100% sure. I think probably it's symbolic. I think the idea here is less that Paul is saying there is a literal crown that's called the crown of righteousness, and more that he's saying, Jesus is going to crown me with righteousness. And here's why this is so significant. Um, righteousness righteousness is, is a word that has a lot, of, um, a, a lot of reaches. Sometimes it's talked about more in the sense of saying we are righteous before God because of what Jesus has done for us. So we're counted as righteous or we're, we're counted as holy. But another way that righteousness is talked about, there's a sense of vindication that goes along with that. Like at the end of a trial that you're declared righteous instead of guilty. There's the idea of vindication. Here's what I think is in Paul's mind as he says this. Paul has lived his life in a way that a lot of people look at it and say, what a waste. I mean, what a waste. You got this talented, brilliant guy, and he lives his life where he's constantly given all his money away. He lost all his status in the Jewish community when he came to faith in Jesus. He constantly suffered, which he didn't really need to do. He could have lived a comfortable, productive, fame-filled life, but they looked at Paul and they said, what a waste. Paul is saying, there may be people that look at me and say, what a waste. But I'm about to get a reward, and you know who's about to give me that reward? Jesus himself, the Lord, the righteous judge. Right now, some of you are participating. Uh, January 1st, we, we encourage people to start reading through the entire Bible, our Bible reading plan. In fact, quick survey, how many of you are participating right now in this Bible reading plan? Oh, I love seeing that. Um, and, and again, if you're not doing that, man, be in God's Word, be reading the Bible. But I've loved this the last couple of weeks of just reading through. And, and so if you're doing the read through this last week, one of the passages that you read is Matthew chapter 6. And Matthew 6, Jesus finds three vivid ways to say you are better off if you're looking for God's reward than mankind's reward. He says, if you're fasting which means you're doing without food for a set amount of time. It says, don't fast in a way that all the people around you notice that you're doing it. Because if they do, them being impressed with you is the only reward you're going to get. Look for the reward that only God can do. Look to have him reward you. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know what? I haven't got a lot of reward in this life. I've got a lot of imprisonment. I've had rocks thrown at me. I've had different difficulties all over the place. I've been cast out by the Jews. I've been cast out by the Romans. I haven't had a lot of reward in this life. But there's a reward waiting for me. And that reward makes nothing of all of the things that I have lost. And at the center of the reward is the joy that Paul is going to have in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ. And along with that reward is whatever other treasures in heaven Paul has been storing up. Paul says, I'm about to die, but my future is brighter than my present. And then here's the really good news that Paul says. He doesn't just say that this crown is something that's only available to him. He says that Jesus is going to give this crown to him and also, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his, Jesus, appearing. What Paul is saying is 
the reason I was able to live a kind of life that would be vindicated in this way is because I lived a life that longed for the appearing of Jesus, that longed for the return of Jesus. And in a way, we could look at this and say, well, well this means that I'm longing for heaven, that I'm thinking about heaven, I'm, I'm thinking about how wonderful it's going to be to be with the Lord, and how wonderful it's going to be when sin is no more, and when we're walking in righteousness, and when Jesus renews the earth, that, that I'm just thinking and, and I'm longing for that. And I'll tell you, that is part of it. But I think more at the core of what Paul is saying, when he's saying, who longed for his appearing, he's saying, the people who lived in a way that they ended up gaining more than they lost by Jesus coming back. Some of you are part of the men's Wednesday night Bible study, and we're, we're preaching through Revelation right now. And Revelation, of course, it's about the end. It's about Jesus coming back. It's about the final judgment. All, all those things are wrapped up in it. And what Revelation tells us is that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be really, really good for some people, and it's going to be really, really bad for some people. It's going to be really, really good for the people who lost things in this life because of their hope in Jesus' return. But then there's a group of people that got fat off this life that are going to lose out when Jesus returns. In fact, and this, this is kind of chilling, but one of the groups that's mentioned overtly late in the chapters of Revelation as a group that loses out, that is grieving the return of Jesus, is the merchants. I'd say, like, the merchants... What happened to like the rapists and the traitors and the murderers? Why the merchants? Why the merchants? Because the merchants benefited and got rich off the current world system. And once there was a transfer in power, their wealth didn't matter anymore. Are you right now? And this is a sobering question because we live in the United States. We can accumulate a lot of wealth and comfort. So, so just let this question linger with you for a moment. The return of Jesus and him becoming Lord and entering into his lordship and taking over the earth. When that happens, do you stand to gain or to lose? Are you going to end up in a situation where you have stored up lots of things that are suddenly not going to matter anymore? Or can you look forward to that day and say, that's the day of vindication. That's the day where finally all the losses that I've taken, all the struggles against sin, all the sacrifices with my finances, all the things that I've done and things that I've said, the friends that I've lost, where all of that finally comes together and I get the reward. I'm shown that it's worth it. If we're going to live life free from regret, we've got to live our lives as a sacrifice to God. And we've got to live our lives being faithful, not to do everything, but to do what God calls us to do. And we've got to live our lives in the hope that Jesus' reward is going to be better than any other reward that we could get. And, and here's what I want to do right now. I, I want to say, you know what? The, the first step in any of this, um, I, I don't know where everybody's at in this room. So there are probably some of you in this room that you have not placed your faith in Jesus. You're not a Christian. So the question to start with for you is, are you willing to put your faith in the future king of this earth? Whatever you've given your life to, whatever you've accumulated in the here and now is not going to matter when you are at the end. It's not going to matter when you're looking back at your life how much stuff you got or how many friends you accumulated by telling them what they wanted to hear. What's going to matter is, is your life so devoted to Jesus that when he comes back, you stand to gain more than you stand to lose? We don't enter into hope in Jesus 
because we joined a religion or followed some rules. We enter in to faith in Jesus through desperately crying out for the forgiveness of our sins, for recognizing that we are lost and broken and alone and guilty before God, but God sent Jesus to bring us into the family. So the first step for anyone is to say, if I'm going to live a life that in the end really reflects what I was meant to do, I've got to live a life that first and foremost, I bow the knee to Jesus. I treat him as Lord. I come to him in desperation for the forgiveness of my sins. And I enter into a relationship where he is my Lord and Savior and I have hope. In a few minutes, when the band comes out and leads us in a final song, we're going to have pastors and elders and prayer team members on either side of the stage. And at any point, I'll ask you to do one of two things. If today is a day that you're saying, it is time for me to place my faith in Jesus, I'm going to ask you, either grab that connection card that's in front of you and mark on there somehow so that one of us on staff can follow up with you. Or even better, come on up to one of us who's going to be near the stage, either during the song or after the song, and we will walk with you and pray with you through that. But let me extend the invitation further, because because as we're singing this final song, at any point during the song, any of you are welcome to just slip out of your seat, come to the front to one of us who's going to be up here, because you may have something that God has placed on your heart as we start off this year. You may look at it and say, Jesus hasn't really been my starting point. And Jesus hasn't really been my ending point. I've been living life, going through day to day. I've been trying to just get things done and keep my nose clean enough. But I know that God is calling me to something bigger. I know that God is calling. Maybe he's calling you to the discipleship project and you're saying, I'm supposed to make some sacrifices and do that. Maybe in a couple weeks when we have Go Team Sunday, you're going to end up getting the call to say, I'm supposed to go on one of these summer teams. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you've just been turning a blind eye to and it's time to really take it on. At any point during this song or afterwards, please do. If God is moving in your heart in that way, slip out of your seat, come to one of us up front, and we will pray with you and partner with you in how you look to put Jesus over everything. So let me pray for us as we prepare to respond. Father, thank you so much that you give us hope. And I pray for anyone this morning who's discouraged that they would say, I am fighting the good fight, but it's tiring and they're starting to feel hopeless, starting to feel like it's not worth it. Father, I pray that you fill us with the hope, with the joy of knowing what what it will be like to be crowned with righteousness by Jesus himself. I pray that you give us glimpses of hope. I pray that you give us reminders of the eternal impact of things that we do. Father, I pray that you lead us to live in such a way that it's a sign of the idea that we believe that Jesus truly is over everything and that his reward will come with him. Move in our hearts as we respond to you now. I pray that you are blessed, and I pray that we receive the help that we need from you. In Jesus' name, amen.